This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. MSW Media. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission, and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. Opioids and fentanyl and heroin and meth and synthetics. I mean, the Centers for Disease Control has started tracking gun deaths. It's a public health crisis. The case of one Zacharias Musawi. I watched that and I was horrified. It's much harder to do the right thing when you know consequences are coming. I worry that we're talking to people who agree with us, and I worry that it's really difficult to reach people who disagree with us. Polarization for profit. If the cost of speaking out is that you have to go find something else to do, so be it. I'm not aware of an individual in public service who has held the particular combination of leadership roles at the same institutions as our guest for this episode. He's served the country as a DOJ trial attorney, an assistant United States attorney, counsel to an FBI director, counselor to the attorney general, chief of staff to the deputy attorney general. He's been the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Texas, the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia, the Chief of Staff to the FBI Director, and the Head of the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA. Somehow, through all that, he's managed to do it while still maintaining his reputation, his credibility, and his humility, although after this intro, maybe maybe not so much. The, the humility. I'm grateful to sit down with MSNBC analyst and Georgetown University adjunct professor, Chuck Rosenberg. Chuck, welcome to the Bureau. Well, Frank, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. And the only thing I can tell your listeners from that introduction is I apparently can't keep a job. Well, I was gonna I was gonna politely bring that up, Chuck, but now you've you've raised that that issue. If you look through your bio, you see movement every couple of years or so. And um I know from my own my own government career that that usually means you're making those above you feel very confident in your abilities and they just keep tapping you or and or you just can't say no. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. There's a third option, which is that nobody wants me and they keep passing me along. Frank. <laughs> well, we want we wanted you for, for this episode. I, I know that because th- you've really got a, a unique is an overused phrase, but You've got a unique perspective on leadership and government that I think is going to apply to what we're going through today. 
particularly DOJ, FBI, and where our where our country is regarding those institutions. Um, you've worked for two FBI directors. Tell me if I'm wrong. Two attorneys general. You've you've run two U.S. attorneys' offices uh, and headed the DEA. So I, I'm I think we're going to get some insights here and apply apply some of your experience to today. Is there any way that the undergrad Chuck Rosenberg at Tufts University ever envisioned as diverse a career in federal government as you've now had? Not at all. In fact, um, both of my parents, who are deceased, wonderful parents, uh, loving and kind and generous and thoughtful, but neither of them went to college. And so as the oldest of three children, you know, I didn't really have a, I had plenty of role models, but I didn't have a path. I didn't have anybody who could help me with that. And so I kind of, you know, stumbled along until one day a really good guidance counselor in my large public high school asked me if I was planning to apply to college. And I said, sure, of course. And she said, well, why don't you apply to Tufts Early Decision? I said, oh, okay, sure. That sounds like a great idea. I had never heard of Tufts and I had never heard of early decision, but it sounded like a great idea. And I went home and told my parents that I had to apply to Tufts early decision. And they also thought it was a great idea. They had never heard of Tufts early decision either. And that's how I ended up there. You know, much of this, Frank, was luck, happenstance, working with and for certain people who inspired me and mentored me, uh, my parents foremost among them. But there was no plan. Uh, there was no clear path. There was just um, an emphasis on education and a lot of love, but uh, no path. Boy, I think we share um, some of that in common. I I was the first person in my family to attend college. And similarly, you know, my, my parents, this was all new to my parents and they, we valued education a lot. And and in, in my household, teachers were thought of as kind of the the epitome of, you know, of what you could do as an, as a noble profession. And so I kind of thought I might be headed toward teaching. Then when I told them, I think I'm going to apply to law school, they kind of, this, this was just head spinning for them. So I get it. And, you know, sometimes there's value in not having a plan. And, and, and that looks like your career path. It looks like there were lots of twists and turns and detours. In fact, early on, it, it looks like if I've got this right, you didn't jump directly from college to law school. There's, there's some, there are things going on in between. Tell us about that. A couple of things going on in between. So I didn't know that I wanted to be a lawyer or a prosecutor. Um, and so law school was um, not in the plan, not on the path. I did a couple of things. I, I worked on Capitol Hill, which was incredibly valuable because uh, while the member of Congress for whom I worked was a, a wonderful gentleman, uh, I hated politics and quickly got that out of my system. And I spent a year as a framing carpenter building houses. Uh, and I wasn't, uh, I loved that work, but I wasn't uh, all that good at it. You know, not too long ago, I drove by the uh, homes that I worked on and they were still standing, which was an enormous relief. Yeah, that, that, that could, that's got to make you feel good that it's still around. It did. Uh, and then I spent two years getting a master's degree in public policy. Uh, and then after all that, kind of figured out that I wanted to be a prosecutor and so that I needed to go to law school. Uh, but you're quite right, Frank. It wasn't uh, linear. It wasn't direct. You know, we uh, this is going to be a shameless segue at some point in, in our discussion, but you know, hold the thought about 
being a part of something that's still standing today and tomorrow. And uh, I think we'll try to include that in our discussion of the institutions of DOJ and, and the FBI that you've, you've been a part of. Tell us about then your evolution as a leader. I look back on my journey. I, I started as a really young manager. Some would say a too young uh, a manager, too early. Uh, how would you compare the Chuck Rosenberg, say, uh, at the tail end of your your federal uh, career as head of the DEA versus, say, the younger leader, Chuck Rosenberg, U.S. attorney in Houston? Yeah, and even before that, Frank, uh, I had been a line assistant U.S. attorney um, for a number of years and was promoted to run the major crimes unit in my U.S. attorney's office. So I suddenly went from being just a colleague, a peer, uh, in a very horizontal organization to running a group of 10 or 12. And that was my first experience with leadership. The good news uh, was that I couldn't do very much damage to an extraordinarily high-functioning group. It's a little bit like coaching uh, the Bulls with Michael Jordan. Every now and then you get off the bench and say, nice shot, Michael, and you sit back down. Um, and so that was relatively easy uh, and manifestly different from being a U.S. attorney, which was manifestly different from running something as large and uh, complex as the DEA. But fortunately, I think those things happened in the right order, meaning I ran something small and relatively easy and then ran a couple of things that were larger and more complex. And then with the DEA, a, a very challenging management job. I should say a wonderful organization really dedicated and committed men and women um, in all different lines of work from special agents to intelligence analysts to forensic chemists to diversion investigators to professional support, but a complex and difficult organization to lead. Yeah, I mean, it, it, a lot of our listeners might be going, well, of course it was in that order. Of course you should lead something small and then incrementally increase your responsibilities. But as you know, that doesn't always happen. Um, in leadership, and and there in, in the history of the FBI, there's been there've been directors that went from being, a, say, a, a judge, right to leading, you know, an organization of thirty five thousand people. That's a jump, um, and it's sometimes it gets ugly. You know, and the irony, Frank, uh, is that I didn't really plan or design or want to lead anything. I wanted to be an assistant U.S. attorney. I went to law school because I wanted to be a federal prosecutor, uh, which wasn't a great plan because those jobs are few and far between and they're hard to get. But I didn't envision myself doing anything other than that work and likely for my entire career. Uh, and so, you know, once again, there's an element of randomness in all this, but I think you're right. Uh, I was lucky that I ran something small and then something medium and then something large. And I learned from plenty of failures and successes uh, along the way. Let, let's talk about that I, I, and what you may have gleaned from from various leaders. You, you can name them or not. Um, I like to say when people ask me this questions, I, I, I've, I've learned from leaders uh, what sometimes what not to do. Um, sometimes from the very same leader, I've learned how not to do something and I've learned how absolutely to do something. Can you look back and think of the the influences uh, and things you might have learned along the way that, that helped you become a better leader? You know, you're, you're right about that, Frank. I mean, you can learn from the same person what to do and what not to do. I think I've been generally pretty lucky. The men and women that I've worked for have been 
good leaders. And when I think about that, I think about it in certain ways. You know, my first boss was Helen Fahey, uh, the U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia. I thought she was a great leader in large part because she was a great person. She was kind and she was thoughtful. She was very, very smart. And she was an experienced state prosecutor before she became the U.S. attorney. And that's all well and good. But she treated people well uh, and she listened well. Uh, and even though she had a lot of experience you know, in the courtroom as a state prosecutor, there was stuff she didn't know about being a federal prosecutor. And she wasn't uh, embarrassed or ashamed or reluctant to ask questions. And that, in my mind, is the mark of a great leader, you know, being humble enough to listen to those around you who know more than you do about, you know, the things that arise in our line of work. You know, I worked for Bob Mueller. That was uh, an enormous privilege. I adore that man. And uh, although he was not warm and fuzzy, uh, he was kind and civil, but he was not warm and fuzzy. Uh, and he had very, very high expectations. And not only that, but uh, unreasonable timelines most of the time. You know, he wanted everything yesterday. But he was driving a large and difficult organization post 9-11. And so that's exactly what you would want in a leader in that position at that time. I've often said, Frank, that I would walk barefoot on broken glass for Bob Mueller. And that working for him often felt that way. <laughs> Yeah, a good line. I, I had not heard that. I had not heard that before. Some some would say, and I think I might be among those, that he may have literally saved the FBI uh, as we know it post 9-11 when there were calls to literally disband or or I should say break up the, the FBI. Was it too big? Could it not concentrate on both criminal and national security? Do you, what are your thoughts on on his role there? I was working for him at that time and I completely agree with you. The FBI was in serious danger, I think, of being broken into two pieces along the MI5, MI6 British model. MI5, of course, is internal intelligence. MI6, of course, is the James Bond stuff, external uh, uh, intelligence. And there were some who thought that the FBI couldn't or shouldn't do both, and that perhaps the intelligence function and the criminal function couldn't really reside together, at least not successfully in the same place. And uh, Bob pushed back very, very hard on that. And even though there was a partisan divide at that time, there always seems to be a partisan divide, he had enormous respect and credibility on Capitol Hill. And when he went up there and spoke about keeping those things, intelligence and criminal enforcement authority, external and in uh, domestic uh, you know, intelligence authority in one place, it resonated uh, with leadership on Capitol Hill. And I think you're quite right that he helped save the Bureau, at least the way we know it. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that. Uh, but much of that was based on the strength of his personality and the respect that members of Congress had for him. And I mean that in a bipartisan sense. It wasn't one party or the other. It was, you know, uniformly true. And I saw it, uh, that uh, Bob commanded enormous respect with uh, leaders on Capitol Hill. That, uh, that apolitical, bipartisan FBI director is so critical to the brand mission, uh, public perception of the FBI. And I, I often wonder um, if we can never come back to those days. I think 
Well, I, I think I think we're struggling with that across our institutions right now and across society. You you mentioned uh, Mueller's personality type. How do you, how would you contrast that with say the leadership of Jim Comey? I loved working for Jim Comey, and I worked for him twice. Once when he was the Deputy Attorney General of the United States, and um, at the beginning of his tenure as the FBI Director. So Jim is a friend. I'm biased. Uh, I've known Jim for a long time. We were actually colleagues. Uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, long before I ever worked for him. I think he's an enormously gifted person. As a communicator, perhaps the best I've ever seen. Incredibly smart, decent, ethical, and very, very funny, something that a lot of people don't know. So I like Jim very much, and I always recognize that when I carry a bias, it might uh, sort of affect the way I think about things and describe things. Uh, But I've always liked him, admired him, and respected him. Indeed. And I, I, many people echo uh, those comments who've been around him for any length of time. Let's talk about that tenure at DEA. And now you're leading a major federal law enforcement agency. And I, I want to first get your thoughts on the role of uh, the federal government when it comes to drugs, drug interdiction, drug enforcement. We're living in a world now where Dozens and dozens of states, including the state I live in, have um, legalized recreational use uh, of marijuana, certainly more states, medical use. Where do you think we're going with this? Where do you think the the tensions between states and the feds are going on on this? It's an interesting question, and there's not a simple answer. I mean, you pointed out one of the tensions. Uh, Many states have uh, either decriminalized uh, marijuana usage or legalized it or have carved out exceptions for quote-unquote medical use, but it's still unlawful under federal law. And the DEA, therefore, is in a tough position because we don't make policy, right? We enforce the statutes that are passed by Congress. Now, I have another thought on this, uh, Frank, which is there are lots of things that are bad for you that are perfectly legal. You know, alcohol, tobacco, um, gambling, sugar, right? There's lots of things that are perfectly legal and nevertheless bad for you. And so if our legislatures want to add another thing to that list, so be it. I think it's a bad idea, but uh, it's not unique. Uh, And so, you know, as the head of the DEA, my view was we enforce the laws as passed by Congress. So what does that mean for marijuana enforcement? The way I thought about it was marijuana is not the biggest drug problem facing the United States, not by a long shot. And so I asked all of our special agents in charge, the men and women who are running our various offices in the field, uh, to prioritize their work based on what was presenting the biggest risk. If it was marijuana, so be it, but it never was. Uh, It was opioids and fentanyl and heroin and meth, synthetics, stuff like that. And so I asked them to focus their work on the things that were most dangerous and that created the greatest risk. Uh, Now, that meant that we did relatively few cases that were exclusively marijuana. The number wasn't zero, but it was relatively low. You have to think about the number of Americans who are dying uh, every year from uh, overdoses, uh, and that was almost never associated with marijuana. So I think it would have been a misapplication of our limited finite resources to focus on on marijuana. 
uh, and we really tried to focus on the things that were killing people. I would also add, Frank, if I may, when I think about the, the staggering number of drug overdoses in the United States, which are uh, probably you know two thirds. My, my data may be a little bit out of date, but roughly two thirds are um, opioid-based heroin, fentanyl, uh, and pills. I see that as a public health crisis, uh, not as a law enforcement issue. It's a public health crisis, just as if we had you know lots and lots and lots of people dying from car accidents or from um, you know smoking cigarettes. You have to address the public health aspects of it. There is a role for law enforcement because there are absolutely large cartels in Mexico and street gangs on the streets of our cities that are uh, profiting off of people's misery. Uh, and you have to uh, target them for uh, interdiction and prosecution. But at base, uh, the problem of people addicted to drugs in the United States is a public health crisis. And with respect to the people who are addicted, uh, we have to think of it in those terms. Yeah, th- this is a whole of society problem. And, and you're right. I think both you and uh, I have lived through various law enforcement scenarios and crises where uh, Congress or the public simply pointed to law enforcement and said, fix it, whether it was carjacking or deadbeat dads or you name it. Uh, they thought no, the feds could fix it. And, and we're uh, clearly, this is a whole of society problem. And as for public health, I, you know, I mean, the Centers for Disease Control has started tracking gun deaths in the United States and, and is, in, you know, increasingly, I think we're looking at gun violence as a public health crisis as well. That's not just about enforcement. Well, I think that's exactly right. It's not just about enforcement. We have to change uh, behaviors uh, and so we have to educate people. We have to help people who are addicted to drugs. We have to have uh, good and thoughtful and available uh, programs uh, for rehabilitation and treatment. I think it's a much more complex problem than people make it out to be sometimes. And to your other point, Frank, asking law enforcement to do all this stuff, well, there are about a million sworn law enforcement officers in the United States, men and women with a badge and a gun at all levels, you know, state, local, and federal. But the federal presence is actually very small. I mean, the FBI has roughly 13,000 special agents. That makes them about one-third the size of the New York City Police Department. And DEA is about one-third the size of the FBI when it comes to sworn law enforcement. There are about 4,500 Uh, men and women who are um, DEA special agents. I think they do extraordinary work, but the notion that 4,500 DEA agents or 13,000 FBI agents are going to solve these problems is ridiculous. Uh, They do tremendous work, but they are not going to solve all of society's problems, uh, and we shouldn't expect them to. Indeed. Let's take a break so I can tell you about a product that I've been using for about a year. It's called True Niagen. I was looking for better, faster recovery from tougher workouts, and what I found was True Niagen. True Niagen helps fuel the cell's energy engines, maintains cellular metabolism, and even supports heart health in combination with a healthy lifestyle. With 13 published human clinical studies and backed by Nobel Prize winners, True Niagen is a supplement that's clinically proven to boost NAD levels, an essential coenzyme required for cellular energy and repair. 
Since I've been taking Trunigen, I've got more resiliency and it helps my muscles recover. Add more vitality to your life today with True Niagen. Right now, new customers can save 10% on their first purchase by going to trueniagen.com slash frank and use code frank. That's T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N dot com slash frank. Code frank to save 10% on your first purchase. trueniagen.com slash frank. Code frank. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now that I've got that off my chest, let's return to our guest. Before we move off of your DEA tenure, I'd, I'd be remiss in, in not asking you about uh, a leadership moment that required you, uh, you felt compelled to, to take a position on something that you saw going on that you thought was antithetical to, to the mission, perhaps. And I want to hear about it, but tell us about an internal memo um, that you shared with your employees at DEA and what prompted you to send that memo. Yeah, this was a hard thing, Frank, and something that I thought a lot about and still do. I, I, I think I did the right thing, but it wasn't simple, although the right thing is often not the simple thing. In the summer of 2017, uh, President Trump gave a speech to law enforcement officers in Suffolk County, New York, mostly cops, I believe, in the audience, and condoned mistreating uh, defendants in custody. He asked, I think rhetorically, uh, you know, why are we so nice to them? Why do we put, why do you put your hands on their head when you put them into the back of a police car, implying that there'd be nothing wrong with just, you know, slamming them into the car uh, and uh, hurting them in the process and mistreating them. And I watched that and I was horrified. Look, we don't have to approve of the things uh, that people do that cause us to arrest them. We seldom would approve of the things that they do when we have cause to arrest them. But we have an absolute legal, moral, and ethical obligation to care for people in our custody. And we also spend a lot of time trying to build bridges to the communities that we serve. And oh, by the way, if um, defendants or people we are going to arrest believe that they are going to be mistreated in our custody, doesn't that also put our agents and officers at risk uh, when they are trying to make those arrests? And so for a whole bunch of reasons, but primarily moral, legal, and ethical, uh, I thought that what the president said was appalling. And I tossed and I turned on this, wondering, should I do anything, say anything? It didn't strike me that silence was acceptable, but I also didn't want to drag the DEA into a political fight. Uh, And I also didn't want to make it about me, but I thought I had to say something. And so I chose to write a memo um, to my entire workforce saying that we adhere to certain core values in our work. Uh, I don't expect that anybody would treat someone in custody uh, the way the president described, but it's worth reminding all of you who we are and what we do and uh, my expectation that we would treat people uh, with all of the um, dignity and rights that are um, afforded to them. If they've done something wrong, we'll let the judicial system uh, and the prosecutorial system sort that out. We will not resort to street justice. Uh, And, uh, you know, so I wrote the email 
uh, and then I slept on it. Uh, and I really worried about sending it because I assumed that it would be leaked in milliseconds. It was. And I really did not want to drag my agency into a fight, but it was important enough that it be said. And so when I hit send on the email, I actually felt this sense of relief wash over me. I also figured that I wouldn't be around too much longer. Uh, that turned out to be true. That was perfectly okay. Uh, I was a little disappointed um, that uh, very, very, very few um, law enforcement leaders at any level disappointed that they didn't step up and say anything. I got lots of calls from people who said, thank you, but I didn't see too much of that being done publicly. So thanks for sharing that. I, I, you know, there are moments in careers that just cry out for doing the right thing, which is very easy, by the way, as you know, when there's no consequences for you personally. And so it's much harder, as you said, to do the right thing when you know consequences are coming. But you know, Frank, it didn't really, I mean, the consequence was that I would lose my job. So be it. You know, um, I had a professor in graduate school who said only hire people who are willing to walk away from their work. And that was shorthand for that they will tell you the truth, they will speak up when something is wrong, uh, and they don't need a job or your money so desperately that it will impair their judgment. And so, you know, you see something that's wrong, you say it, you bear the consequences, and you go do something else. It's perfectly okay. I liked the work. At times, I loved the work, but I didn't need the work. And so if the cost of speaking out is that you have to go find something else to do, so be it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. And it it's makes so much sense when you say it. And yet, here we are today with a, seemingly a lack of people, particularly on the, around the former administration, who will come out and do the right thing. So there, and and it's, a, it's a bit of a mystery as to the role of power, preserving their power, preserving their ambitions or ego, and, and not coming out. If, you know, you did it in your little corner of the world, but if everybody did that in their respective little corners of the world, we might be in a much different place. You, you have any thoughts on what prevents people from, from doing that? Well, first of all, I think lots of people do the right thing, um, and they do it all the time. And I think we often focus on people who don't do the right thing uh, or who manifestly do the wrong thing. And it may skew in some ways our judgment of how people behave. But you're right, Frank. There are plenty of people who don't do the right thing. Um, and it's, it can be agonizing to watch. It's often dispiriting. They hold on for lots of reasons, money, power, prestige. But all of those things in the end, frankly, are meaningless. You know, and I've heard Jim Comey speak about this eloquently, is that you know, at the end of your life, not to be too maudlin, when you look back, you know, was it the fancy car you bought or was it the way you treated others, right? What really matters in the end? And I'm not sure that all of those things went through my head. I had been raised by two loving and kind and decent parents who taught us to do the right thing. So you do the right thing. I still think most people do. There have been some high, high profile failures of that. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, deeply distressing. But I think we've always had characters like that. I don't think that's new. 
uh, I think we may be paying more attention to them, but I don't think it's new. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, good point. Uh, maybe what's new is the attacks on those who, who are doing the right thing. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking of Lieutenant. Well, you know. well, well that is new, yeah. uh, at least to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have not seen that, although it probably happened. I'm not a historian. Um, but it does seem that people who try to do the right thing um, are relentlessly attacked for it. Now, the good news, Frank, is that I am not on social media anywhere, ever. And so if folks want to attack me, it's just a little bit harder. Uh, I'm sure there are plenty of haters out there. That's fine. Um, but not being on social media is an absolute blessing. Uh, I will echo that as someone who is on social media and increasingly tries not to not to look at uh, very disturbing things that are happening there. Um, your career has been filled with national security, high profile cases, espionage prosecutions, terrorism prosecutions. And you um, were involved in the case of one Zacharias Musawi, uh, a 9-11 conspirator. If I've got this right, the only person convicted in the United States in con connection with 9-11. And, and I note with interest that that case at least started out with the possibility of a death penalty, which is a rare uh, situation in the federal government, right? So you've got a, you've got a real live terrorist conspirator with Al-Qaeda, 9-11 attacks. I, I don't want to get into the deep details of that case necessarily, but I do want to talk about the role uh, of a prosecutor, what advice you would give to a prosecutor who is potentially looking at a death penalty case, and whether or not, the, the degree to which a prosecutor's private beliefs about the death penalty should or could impact an approach to a prosecution? Yeah, I can take the second question first. Um, and you're quite right, Frank. Uh, Musali was the only person uh, connected to the 9-11 conspiracy ever convicted in an Article Three court in the United States. We had a team of prosecutors in the Eastern District of Virginia, and were joined by federal prosecutors from the Southern District of New York and an amazing support staff and victim witness coordinators and paralegals who helped put that very difficult and complex case together. Uh, and I was you know, privileged to be the US attorney at the end of the case. I had also worked on it, ironically, um, when I was at the FBI and when I was at the Department of Justice in various ways, um, but I was never all that important to it. We had line prosecutors who were really talented uh, who shepherded that case uh, through to uh, conviction and sentencing. There is a policy in the Department of Justice, and it's a good one and a thoughtful one, uh, that if you are personally opposed to the death penalty, then you can exempt yourself from a prosecution entirely. I remember very distinctly when I was chief of the major crimes unit in the Eastern District of Virginia prior to 9-11, that we had a death penalty case, and I assigned it to a woman who was a very talented prosecutor, one of our absolute best. And she came to me privately and said, look, I am opposed to the death penalty. I would prefer not to do this. And the answer was, absolutely, got it, fine, we'll move it to someone else. Uh, and I was really glad she told me that. I didn't know her politics or her preference. I didn't matter. Um, she was just opposed to the death penalty. And so any federal prosecutor who wants to exempt um, himself or herself from a death penalty case can absolutely do that. I, by the way, am not a hawk on the death penalty. 
uh, my views on the death penalty have changed over time. I think there's a very, very, very small number of cases, I'm thinking of the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, where it is arguably appropriate. But I think in the main, um, state prosecutions too often um, seek the death penalty, uh, and I'm uncomfortable with that. There are very few death penalty cases in the federal system, and there's also a process in place for federal death penalty cases that give me a measure of comfort that we're seeking in the right cases for the right reasons. But I don't have that measure of comfort with the way it is used in many states. Yeah, I think that the, at least two things that, that that give me pause with regard, particularly to how states do this, is uh, the disparity in uh, who who faces the death penalty and, and who doesn't, particularly a, a racial disparity, at least from the last data that I was looking at, and and then the evidence that there, there's no deterrent. Um, that you know, people say, well, it's a deterrent to the person who's being executed, c- certainly, but um, if you look at crime stats in places after they institute a death penalty or, or after they execute someone, there's there's no evidence. In fact, in some states, to the contrary, there's evidence that crime goes up, which shows you that statistics don't don't link to it at all. Well, it's, it's interesting, Frank. So there are, generally speaking, two types of deterrence, and you referred to them both, uh, specific deterrence. If Frank Figluzzi robs a bank, we'll prosecute Frank for bank robbery and we'll put him in jail and he will be deterred at least during the period of time that he's in jail from robbing another bank. And then there's general deterrence, which is all of your listeners learn, Frank, that you've been um, convicted and incarcerated for bank robbery. And maybe as a result, none of them will rob a bank. And uh, I agree with you with respect to specific deterrence. It obviously works. While you're in jail, you're not going to rob a bank. Uh, But I think the data on general deterrence is a lot murkier. So if we are predicating decisions to seek the death penalty on a general deterrence theory, uh, that troubles me. The other thing that bugs me, I would add to your list, is that in the um, federal system, people against whom we are seeking the death penalty are given enormous resources to defend themselves. Misawi, uh, the 9-11 conspirator in the Eastern District of Virginia, had remarkably able uh, team of uh, counsel appointed to help him, including death penalty specialists. And by the way, he didn't get the death penalty. Uh, A jury has to be unanimous to convict 12-0. It has to be unanimous to acquit 0-12. But it also has to be unanimous to impose the death penalty. And in Misawi's case, there was a single holdout, which is fine. That's the jury system. And so by a vote of 11 to 1, Uh, He avoided the death penalty and was sentenced instead to uh, life uh, in prison without the possibility of parole. Let's uh, we've covered a lot of a lot of ground from from drugs to drug policy and enforcement to death penalty. I want to get the value of your collective experience as an advisor, a counselor to FBI directors, to attorneys general. And I want to put it in today's context. If you had your roles today, maybe at, at FBI headquarters, maybe at DOJ headquarters, and you've got the ear of, say, Chris Ray or Merrick Garland, what kinds of things are you telling them about where we are today in society, specifically the January 6th investigation, huge questions about a former president and 
looking into what happened on at the Capitol, what what kind of advice are you giving them? That's a very difficult question because they are privy to stuff that you and I just don't know anymore, Frank. But generally speaking, I would say this, and I know Chris um, uh, reasonably well uh, and Merrick Garland less so, but they're both very principled men. That doesn't mean I agree with them on everything they do. But the thing I noticed in working for people like that, you know, um, for Bob Mueller, for Jim Comey, for Sally Yates, who was my boss, somebody I just adore, is that they get the hard decisions, not the easy decisions. You know, they get the ones with imperfect information or which there's really no great answer or precedent points in different directions. We don't ask these folks to solve the easy problems. That's resolved layers below them. And so I often found myself in those jobs dealing with imperfect information and um, no good answer. And that's where you rely on people like you know, Sally Yates or Merrick Garland or Lisa Monaco or Chris Ray or Bob Mueller to use their judgment. Uh, we're really paying at that level for judgment. We're also paying for integrity and, you know, uh, and, uh, and intellect and diligence and honesty, but we're really getting judgment, which means almost by definition that someone is going to disagree with their judgment, and that's okay. You also have to have some humility in those jobs. You have to understand that you may get some stuff wrong. Um, you have to uh, create and abide by processes to get the best information to you. And like my very first boss, Helen Fahey, you have to be willing to listen to others. You know, um, there is this combination of traits that you see in great leaders that seem mutually exclusive. And you may have heard this formulation before, Frank, but they have to be both humble and confident, right? Humble enough to solicit and listen to information presented to them, to ask questions that might expose the fact that they don't know everything, and then confident enough uh, to act on imperfect information. And great leaders are often both humble and confident. Uh, and so I don't know that I have specific advice for Chris Ray or for Merrick Garland. I do know that I think they fit that profile. Uh, and so that they're going to make the best judgment based on the information presented to them. There is a problem, though, and you know this, it's often hard to speak truth to power. And so even if an attorney general or an FBI director is humble and confident and genuinely wants input from the men and women on their executive teams, you often don't see that. I remember sitting in meetings with attorneys general or with FBI directors where they were desperate for input and information. And you know it's hard for the folks around them to publicly disagree with them or to point out some flaw in their reasoning or to even tell them that they have their facts wrong. And, and that makes the process difficult for leaders, particularly if they're trying to do the right thing. I'm sure you've seen that. I, I, I have. The, the leader has to work even harder to, to tease that out. Uh, I, I can recall um, this, uh, when I was uh, a leader in a field office and having my supervisory staff in my office, and we had some tough decisions to make. And I, you know, everybody was just kind of agreeing with me. And I, and I, I said, no, wait, no, wait a minute. We're not leaving my office until someone comes up with a contrary or alternative idea. And, you know, there was silence in, in the room until they realized, no, I, I'm serious. I, you've got to come up with something different than I said. Well, you know, Frank, it's funny that you say that. When I was running the DEA, 
I assumed I was getting 1% of the truth at every meeting. And so the solution is not to have fewer meetings, it's to have many, many more. And that's one of the reasons why I traveled to 120 of our field offices in the two and a half year period. I figured if I got 1% of the truth at every place I went, I'd go to 100 places uh, and I might get something you know, closer to the truth. And it's not because the people who work for you are liars. I don't believe that to be the case at all. I just think it's a very difficult dynamic between the leader and the lead. And you're right, you have to work really, really hard um, to sort of draw that out of the bureaucracy. And so when there are failures of leadership, it could be that they have bad judgment. It could be that they uh, are not that bright. But it could also be that they're not getting the information they need out of their um, bureaucracy to make the best judgment they can, albeit on imperfect information, in the time that they have to make the judgment. And that's a problem, but it's not unique to government. I think that's just unique to human beings. Indeed. So both you and uh, I find ourselves post-federal government career on cable news. And uh, we happen to be affiliated with the same news network. What do you see as our role, the, 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 the former feds, now maybe talking heads, and, and do you wrestle with your role on television and get ever concerned about whether we're contributing in some way to polarization and division, perhaps merely because of perceptions of who we work for or what we're saying? Oh, my goodness, Frank. If I made a list of things I thought I would never do in my entire life, this would have been one, two, and three. And yes, I wrestle with it. I thought that I knew some stuff about how cases were made and how investigators and prosecutors worked and that I could contribute uh, positively to a dialogue. Um, but there doesn't seem to be much dialogue. And so sometimes I wonder what it is exactly I'm contributing to. You know, I've enjoyed aspects of it. I find the folks at MSNBC to be very professional and very thoughtful. And I think genuinely that they want to get it right. Though that doesn't mean that happens all the time. Uh, and I worry that I am speaking inside of an echo chamber, that the people who watch MSNBC are inclined to agree with most of the stuff that you and I say. I try really hard, as I know you do, to be an analyst uh, and not to be a partisan and to just explain how stuff works. But I wish I could do that more broadly sometimes. And it was one of the reasons why I started my podcast, uh, The Oath. Uh, we're done now. We're not, uh, thank goodness, trying to compete with your podcast. Oh. We would get destroyed. Oh. Um, but we did it for four seasons because I wanted to have longer form conversations about you know, what we do as prosecutors and special agents and to try and explain that to the public, at least that segment of the public willing to listen. And so, yeah, I worry about that. I, I worry that we're talking to people who agree with us. And I worry that it's really difficult to reach people who disagree with us. Uh, I worry, too, that the information I get is, you know, and I don't mean this in a nefarious way, but that it's biased uh, and that I don't have all the facts I need and all the inputs I need and all the opinions I need to make better judgments. Yeah. Like you, I, I have concerns I, I wrestle with and uh, we don't always control uh, who's on a particular panel with us or the questions that will get thrown at us. We can only control 
uh, our response and, and how we handle it. And yes, uh, we try hard to be neutral analysts, but I also am aware that it, it's increasingly hard to do neutral analysis when your analysis keeps coming out that there's a particular th- national security threat <laughs> or that, that certain people pose or, or, you know, that the system and institutions are being eroded. Um, it's hard to appear to be neutral. And I, I'm also aware of, you know, a concept of polarization for profit that uh, I think at least one network seems to be wholly immersed in. So it's, um, you know, the day may come when we, we make certain decisions based on, based on where we are. You know, that's right, Frank. But I always point out to folks, I was appointed to one job by President Bush and to another job by President Obama. And I'm proud of having worked in both of their administrations. I don't see this as a Republican-Democrat thing. There are good Republicans and there are good Democrats, and there are bad Republicans and there are bad Democrats. That's always been true and it always will be true. So I really try not to approach this as a partisan. But to your point, the behavior of the last president was horrific in so many ways. And when I'm asked to talk about that, I wasn't reluctant to say it. I think that he should have been impeached. I believe he is, although it hasn't been proven in a court of law, a criminal. Uh, I have very strong opinions about our former president and was, in the end, relieved not to be serving in his administration anymore. But I don't mean that in a partisan way. Like I said, I was happy, honored, privileged to work for President Obama and President Bush. Whatever your disagreements with them, they were decent, honorable men. And for all of those who sort of disliked either, at least now you see what civility and maturity look like. I can think of no better way to end our discussion than on on, on the notes of civility and maturity. Um, I hope our listeners have enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. Um, I think it was part uh, therapy session for me, perhaps. um, I want to thank you not only for joining us, but for your service to this country and your continued service in helping to be that neutral explainer and analyst. Chuck Rosenberg, thanks for joining us. It's my privilege, Frank. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, anytime. I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Chuck Rosenberg as much as I did. Now, next time, you're going to want to join in for another great guest. Since I'm into clues and solving mysteries, let me give you some clues as to who our next guest is. She's the host of the Suburban Women Problem podcast. She's married to some guy who was a lieutenant colonel assigned to the White House. And her Twitter profile reads as follows. Opinions are my own and not necessarily the views of my husband, but obviously if our views are different, mine is correct. If you haven't guessed by now, our next guest will be Rachel Vindman. You'll want to be here for that. Thanks for listening. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.